Welcome to Israel Week in Review. This is Tuesday, June 1st. Israel Week in Review is brought to you by Origin Story Marketing. Search engine optimization services help your business get found online. Help your customers find your business. For a free consultation, visit originstorymarketing.com. My name is Ben Ronsman, and this program seeks to provide listeners with an insight into the week's news from Israel. Unfortunately, we are launching our inaugural episode on the heels of a violent exchange between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Many of you may have questions about what transpired. What is the context of the violence? What were the events that led up to the most recent exchange? How did each side perform? What sort of losses were sustained? What are the long-term ramifications of this most recent flare-up? What are the geopolitical implications for Israel, the Palestinians, and the broader region? I think it is instructive to let the listener know what my perspective is on this enormously contentious issue. I don't feign indifference. I'm not a neutral party. I'm an unabashed supporter of the state of Israel who has family living there. I have lived, worked, and studied there, in addition to serving in the Israeli army. I'm an engaged Jew who has an unshakable belief that the Jewish people have the right to self-determination and security. This, incidentally, is why I define myself as a Zionist, a much maligned term that is widely misunderstood and misrepresented. If you believe that the Jewish people has the right to self-determination in the one majority Jewish country on earth, then you're a Zionist as well. If you believe that this state, home to 9 million people and the single largest home to Jews anywhere in the world, should be destroyed, you're an anti-Zionist. Now there are ostensibly anti-Zionists who contend that they don't wish to violently destroy the state of Israel. Rather, they argue that it should be peacefully dismantled. This is a ridiculous argument. There has never been an instance of a country peacefully agreeing to its own destruction. Moreover, the disappearance of ethnic and religious minorities elsewhere in the Middle East serve as a warning to Israeli Jews in the event of their losing any war. Dismantling the state of Israel would require truly genocidal actions against it, a threat that is not merely an academic exercise for the Jewish people. However, I do want to clarify that my support for the state of Israel and its people does not make me indifferent to the suffering of Palestinians. Arabs and Jews are destined to live together in the same land. This is unavoidable, and somehow we will have to find a way to build a future that allows for political freedom and economic development for the Palestinians, and security guarantees and regional integration for Israel. Tragically, the Palestinian national movement has remained fixated on destroying and replacing Israel rather than developing governing institutions and a dynamic economy for their own society. This is an uncomfortable fact. The Hamas movement is the governing authority in the Gaza Strip and would almost certainly win elections in the West Bank if free and fair elections were permitted by the Palestinian Authority. They explicitly call for the destruction of Israel. Fatah, the supposed moderate party within Palestinian society, has turned down numerous offers of Palestinian statehood due to an inability to compromise on maximalist goals. The Hamas Charter countenances no historic compromise with Israel or the Jewish people. Indeed, Their charter overtly states that Hamas is simply the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, and that our struggle against the Jews is great and serious. Any territorial compromise is rejected. Hamas does not seek to hide its intention to destroy Israel and found an Islamist state in Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank. In Article 13 of its covenant, it states that the only solution for the Palestinians is jihad, and that initiatives, proposals, and international conferences are all a waste of time. Over the last 20 years, there have been two Israeli official offers of statehood in 2000 and 2008. These were completely rejected by Palestinian negotiators without so much as a counterproposal. 
the long-term strategy of the Palestinian negotiators was to extract further concessions from the Israelis while delegitimizing them in international forums. Negotiations could be suspended whenever deemed necessary, and violence, including the use of suicide bombers and rocket attacks, would be used as an alternating tactic. Moreover, Israeli counterterrorism activities would be condemned and war crimes would be invoked in order to delegitimize Israel. Asymmetric warfare conducted in the court of Western public opinion has been very effective. The Palestinians historically have been able to do this all in the knowledge that they could return to negotiations from precisely the point at which they left off. In this way, they could incrementally improve their position, while the position of the Israelis would be eroded over time. This was a remarkably effective strategy, until the advent of the Trump administration. Over the years, numerous Arab states had recognized this Palestinian rejectionism and were greatly frustrated by it. Indeed, Saudi Prince Bandar bin Sultan told the American delegation that if Yasser Arafat did not accept the offer of a Palestinian state being negotiated with Bill Clinton and Dukhud Barak, that this rejection will not be a tragedy, it'll be a crime. The Saudis, the Emiratis, Bahrain, Oman, Morocco, and others had already established clandestine relationships with the Israelis and had essentially accepted the right of Israel to exist within secure and recognized borders in the region. Over the ensuing decades, Israel began to be seen as an established fact and a regional power with a dynamic and sophisticated economy. The Arab states recognized that Israel presented no strategic threat to their respective countries and that Israel could serve as a strong ally against an increasingly aggressive Iran, a power which threatened both Israel and numerous Arab states. Besides security coordination, these countries were increasingly interested in trade, particularly in areas such as arid land agriculture, military technology, AI, and more. The only problem was that the Palestinians held veto power over regional peace efforts. A strategic shift was deemed necessary. The Arab world is still reeling from the dislocations brought on by the Arab Spring only a decade ago. The massive death toll and refugee crisis in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and beyond relegated the Palestinian issue to secondary or even tertiary importance. On Israel's northern border alone, nearly 6.6 .6 million Syrians are refugees, and an additional 6.2 million are internally displaced. It is understandable why the Palestinian cause has lost its urgency. Moreover, the old pan-Arab dream of destroying Israel seems increasingly unlikely. While the Arab nations pay lip service to certain notions of Arab unity, the pan-Arab dream that had once motivated millions is increasingly irrelevant. In fact, the only regional military power still openly calling for and working towards Israel's destruction are the Iranians. Their increased fear of influence in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon create a projection of Iranian and Shia power that frightens the largely Sunni Arab regimes. Bahrain, with its restive Shia population, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and beyond seek an alliance with Israel against the feared Iranian menace. Israel's military strength, intelligence prowess, technological know-how, and alliance with the United States are seen as indispensable. These clandestine relationships were brought into the open and negotiated under the auspices of the Americans. The Abraham Accords, as they were called, established peace treaties and bilateral agreements between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. This is in addition to the peace agreements already in place with Egypt and Jordan. Saudi Arabia and Oman would have likely signed on to these agreements as well had Trump secured a second term. As it stands, security coordination with these two governments remains very strong. This was a shock to the Palestinian National Movement, which is split between Hamas and Gaza and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. 
To make matters worse for the Palestinians, the Trump administration actually published a detailed map outlining the parameters and borders of a Palestinian state. These borders were less advantageous than those rejected by Yasser Arafat in 2000 and Mahmoud Abbas in 2008. Considering these developments, alongside American recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital and Israeli claims to the formerly Syrian Golan Heights, the Palestinians had many reasons to be dispirited. Their long, successful strategy had suffered a significant setback. The Palestinian national movement is riven by violent internal conflict between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. Mahmoud Abbas, the 85-year-old leader of the Palestinian Authority, has been experiencing health problems, making numerous trips to Israel and abroad to seek health care. No immediate successor is evident. Abbas has recently entered the 16th year of his four-year term. It has been alleged that Mr. Abbas and his family are worth $100 million, monies almost certainly pilfered from Palestinian public coffers. Palestinian discontent with his rule is understandable. Hamas won Palestinian legislative elections in 2006. 2007 saw a brief but violent civil war between Hamas and Fatah that led to a Hamas victory in the Gaza Strip. Since this time, Hamas has run a small Islamist state on the Mediterranean coast, bordering Israel and Egypt. It has launched tens of thousands of missiles and mortars against Israeli civilian populations. Much of this technology originates in Iran. There have been numerous skirmishes and small wars in the intervening years. Israel has imposed a blockade on the Palestinians that limits certain imports potentially used for military purposes. This, of course, has been the subject of much international condemnation, despite the fact that Canada, the European Union, Israel, Japan, and the United States have designated Hamas a terrorist organization. What is less well known is that Egypt also imposes a blockade on the Gaza Strip because of their own fears of Hamas smuggling weapons, militants, and material into Egypt. I suspect that this trenchant fact is largely ignored by Israel's critics. It doesn't comport with the narrative of Israel as the sole occupying, blockading power and a force hell-bent on increasing Palestinian suffering for no other reason than their aggression and callousness. Egypt's sustained blockade is hardly criticized at all because it doesn't fit this narrative. Both the Israelis and Palestinians are currently experiencing political crises of their own. Undoubtedly, this was a contributing factor in the conflict. Mahmoud Abbas had announced both presidential and legislative elections, the first since 2005 and 2006. The chasm between these two parties is enormous. Remember, they fought a civil war in 2007 that saw a Hamas victory in Gaza. A few short weeks after announcing elections, Abbas promptly suspended them, indefinitely. The stated reason was that Israel would not allow polling stations in some neighborhoods in Jerusalem. Although elections did take place there in 2005 and 2006, albeit with complaints lodged against Israel. Astute observers of the conflict perceived the real reason for the cancellation. Virtually all polling conducted amongst the Palestinians showed a resounding Hamas victory. In fact, Hamas labeled the election cancellations a coup. With elections canceled, Hamas's attempts to consolidate control over the Palestinian national movement were stymied. The desire for Hamas to become the standard bearer of the Palestinian cause was certainly the primary reason for escalation. Indeed, they were the only party with a motive to light this fuse. As we will see, Hamas, although not the people of Gaza, have been the primary beneficiary. Another destabilizing factor is the political instability experienced by Israel in recent years. Indeed, developments on this front are changing rapidly and will require explanation in subsequent programs. Israel, a parliamentary democracy, has been unable to assemble a stable coalition and has consequently had four elections over the last two years. 
Once again, Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party is the largest party in the Knesset. He has been the longest serving Israeli prime minister in history. Despite a series of unprecedented diplomatic achievements and a world-leading COVID immunization campaign, Netanyahu remains a divisive figure. Former allies have abandoned him due to personal, not ideological, conflicts. A number of corruption trials continue to dog him and have damaged his reputation amongst voters. At the time of this news release, there are strong indications that a collection of parties, right, left, center, and Arab, may be announcing a new coalition government. Nonetheless, two years of political instability have taken their toll. This internal instability likely was a contributing factor in the recent violence. Israel resides in a difficult neighborhood. Any perceived weakness on its part will almost certainly elicit a response from its enemies. Blood in the water attracts sharks. The fact that this violence erupted during Ramadan is not a surprise. This period has historically been a time of increased violence between Palestinians and Israelis. It is practically an inexorable law of the universe that Ramadan will see riots and outbreaks of violence in a series of flashpoints, particularly in Jerusalem. Sadly, this year was no exception. Like everything else related to this conflict, there are multiple variables and layers of complexity, but Jerusalem remains a touchstone. The Israeli security services, for reasons related to the coronavirus pandemic and general security concerns, sought to limit attendance at the Al-Aqsa Mosque to 10,000 worshippers at a time. Now, the Saudi authorities had also reduced attendance at the Islamic holy sites in Mecca and Medina due to COVID concerns at precisely this same time. Nonetheless, there were violent protests associated with these restrictions, along with calls to save Al-Aqsa. As we have seen repeatedly throughout history, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Temple Mount upon which it sits have historically been a major flashpoint for violence. As if the factors already mentioned were not sufficient, additional factors also helped bring the issue of Jerusalem to the forefront. The Israeli Supreme Court was scheduled to hear a court case dealing with three properties in the predominantly Arab neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem. Before Israel's War of Independence in 1948, a major part of this neighborhood had a Jewish community. Since the Middle Ages, a burial cave complex has been associated with Shimon HaTzadik, or Simon the Just. Simon was a second temple high priest who is mentioned in the Jewish holy text known as the Mishnah. He was also one of the last members of the ancient Jewish deliberative body known as the Sanhedrin. The Jewish community centered around this site was expelled during Israel's War of Independence when the neighborhood fell under Jordanian control. The court case in question involved some of the previous Jewish owners of the property and their agents suing the current Arab occupants in order to have the property returned. Palestinian Arabs understandably feel that evicting the residents is unjust because Arabs who lost property during Israel's War of Independence could not reclaim property in Israel which they previously owned. Moreover, the Arab residents of these formerly Jewish properties were themselves descendants of people who had lost property in Israel. In fact, it was the United Nations which settled the current residents into these homes in the first place. The case had been winding its way through Israeli courts since the 1970s, and unfortunately the appeals process, while lengthy, was finally coming to a conclusion during this time of rising tensions. The protests surrounding these properties had become something of a cause celeb. In an effort to reduce tensions, the government requested a postponement of the case. This was done for the first time in Israel's history. Yet another factor which placed Jerusalem front and center in this conflict was Yom Yerushalayim, or Jerusalem Day. This holiday, which is mostly celebrated by Israel's national religious community, commemorates the day that Jerusalem came under full Israeli control and Jews regained access to their holy sites, most notably the Western Wall, which was inaccessible for 19 years. 
The festivities usually include a procession to the Western Wall that takes marchers through the Old City. Festooned in Israeli flags, this procession often leads to clashes and requires significant security. This year, the confluence of tensions led the Israelis to change the route of the procession to avoid the Damascus Gate and the Arab quarter of the city. This step had never been taken before, but violence occurred nonetheless. Worshippers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which sits atop the Temple Mount and overlooks the Western Wall, began to pelt worshippers at the wall with stones. Having witnessed rocks being thrown from Al-Aqsa down on Jewish worshippers at the wall, I can attest that this could easily lead to death or serious injury. The entire Western Wall Plaza had to be evacuated. Israeli security forces then entered the compound to disperse the rock-throwing crowd. 300 Palestinians were injured. Images of Israeli security forces setting off stun grenades and other crowd control measures within the mosque compound were beamed across the world. Even Western television networks, to say nothing of Palestinian media, presented this as a heavy-handed and unprovoked assault on a religious site by the Israelis. Hamas released an ultimatum telling Israel to stand down or face fire. On May 10th, rockets were launched at Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and other cities adjacent to Gaza. Hamas's rockets were able to reach Jerusalem and Tel Aviv due to the transfer of the Fajr 5 rocket from Iran into the Gaza Strip. The Ayash rocket was also imported into Gaza, despite the blockade, and was used against targets near Eilat, including its airport. The conflict lasted for 11 days, and while it caused some death and dislocation within Israeli society, Israel's use of the Iron Dome defense system, modern air force, rocket warning system, and widespread use of bomb shelters ensured that Israel would retain the upper hand. During the course of fighting, Hamas and their allies in the Gaza Strip, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, launched 4,300 rockets at Israeli population centers. Approximately 85 to 90 percent of these missiles were intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome defense system. Twelve civilians and one soldier on the Israeli side were killed. Amongst the dead, three were foreign nationals working in Israel, and two deaths were an Arab father and daughter from Lud. Over 240 Gaza residents were killed in 11 days of fighting, and enormous damage was inflicted on Gazan infrastructure. Palestinian drone attacks were repulsed with overwhelming ease. Rockets fired at Israel's offshore gas installations were all blocked. A new Palestinian submarine fleet meant to sabotage Israel's shipping and energy infrastructure was destroyed within a matter of hours, as were Hamas's much-vaunted anti-tank units. These were all destroyed within the first day or two of the conflict. But why would Hamas launch rocket attacks against a vastly superior foe? If one uses the internal logic of the Muslim Brotherhood, this action makes a great deal of sense. Israel may have easily won this encounter tactically, but strategically Hamas sought and achieved some real advances. They firmly established themselves as the leader of the Palestinian National Movement and the Islamic defender of Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa. If they were projected to win Palestinian elections before fighting began on May 10th, their popularity over the moribund Fatah movement is nearly unassailable now. Hamas managed to continue to fire rockets over the course of 11 days of fighting. This meant that a significant portion of the Israeli population, approaching a majority, had their lives interrupted by rocket fire and the constant need to run into bomb shelters. Ben-Gurion Airport was closed to international traffic, leaving only one other airport, Ramon Airport in the Negev, functioning. Iranian Ayash missiles were fired at the airport. While they were downed by Israel's air defenses, it brought the country perilously close to being blockaded. These are the only international airports in the country. Public opinion of Israel also suffered in the U.S. and Europe. The world loves an underdog, and despite the unsavory extremism of Hamas, the outcry against Israel may be unprecedented, 
at least since the 1970s. The right of Israel to exist is increasingly called into question, and particularly in progressive circles in Europe and the United States. While the Biden administration and the majority of the Democratic leadership in Congress have remained supportive of Israel, increasingly strident voices on the far left show that this support is weakening. In a worldview where all social interactions are simplistically reduced to a power struggle between the imperialistic whites and the oppressed people of color, Israel has been described as a white colonial settler project, and the Palestinians are described as indigenous people of color and victims. While this simplistic worldview overlooks the fact that the majority of Israeli Jews are descendants of people forced out of the Muslim and Arab world, it remains a commonly held trope. It is not unreasonable to believe that within 10 to 20 years, a democratic administration may actually be unfriendly or even hostile to Israel. This presents a genuine danger to Israel's most significant diplomatic relationship. Nonetheless, governments in Europe, ranging from Germany, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Austria, have all expressed support for Israel. Austria took the unusual step of flying the Israeli flag over government buildings. With socialist parties in freefall, concerns over immigration from Islamic countries, and a series of high-profile attacks across the continent conducted by Islamic militants, many Europeans have taken a second look at Israel and decided that they support the beleaguered state, even seeing its fight against Islamic terrorism as a model. The Abraham Accords remain firmly in place. Egypt took a leading role in brokering the ceasefire, and no Muslim country withdrew its ambassadors. In fact, Bangladesh, one of the 28 countries in the world not to recognize Israel, surprisingly removed a clause in their passports which forbade entry to people who have visited. The Emirati ambassador recently met with Israel's Fardi chief rabbi and received a blessing of peace. Unfortunately, the situation between Jews and Arabs within Israel has deteriorated dramatically. Unprecedented intercommunal violence broke out in ethnically mixed cities in Israel. Cars were set on fire, synagogues were burned down, Molotov cocktails were thrown into Jewish homes in Lod, and Arab cab drivers were assaulted on the street. The painstaking work establishing intercommunal understanding and cooperation has been set back in dramatic fashion. On the eve of fighting, the Islamic Ram Party was being wooed by politicians on both Israel's right and left. It remains to be seen whether this party will be able to enter the next governing coalition. On a positive note, the Ram Party has been a moderating influence and much-needed voice. Its leader, Mansour Abbas, no relation to Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas, has already offered to help rebuild Jewish synagogues. He met with elected Jewish political leaders in the affected cities and continued negotiations with Israeli political parties in the seemingly never-ending pursuit to assemble a stable government. So the results have been mixed. Hamas has definitely moved into the driver's seat amongst Palestinians. They have survived to fight another day. For this, they can claim a victory of sorts. Fatah, the party of Mahmoud Abbas, is the undisputed loser in this conflict. They are seen as effete and corrupt, but Hamas paid a heavy price for its newfound status. Hundreds of millions of dollars of damage and a significant reduction of its military capacity were incurred. The Israeli results were also mixed. While Israel was unable to inflict a fatal blow on Hamas's hold on power, they did diminish its capabilities and inflicted significant damage with a minimal loss of Israeli life. Nonetheless, Hamas demonstrated that they can still inflict pain on Israel, and Israel's standing amongst progressives seems to have deteriorated, presenting long-term threats to the country. Israel was able to maintain staunch support from the American administration and consolidated support amongst European partners. Perhaps most importantly, its newfound alliances in the Arab world did not disappear. The Abraham Accords survive. I suspect that these nations, particularly the United Arab Emirates and Egypt, will play an increasingly important role in peacemaking going forward.
Hamas is operating under the assumption that through blood and sacrifice, it will eventually wear down the Israelis, who will turn tail and return to their countries of origin. A more significant miscalculation is difficult to imagine. Hamas will never be able to dislodge Israel for one simple reason. This is not the colonial conflict that Israel's critics contend it is. The French left Algeria after significant loss of life and returned to France. The British left India and returned home after centuries of rule. The Americans have largely left Afghanistan. But the Israelis have nowhere else to go. The idea that Israelis will return to Ukraine, Syria, Egypt, Poland, Iraq, and Germany is fanciful. Israel's secret weapon is not only its technological sophistication, creativity, diplomatic relations, or a strong sense of national unity. While many, present company included, see God's hand in history present in Israel's improbable story, one doesn't have to resort to theological language in order to explain Israel's stubborn success. Israel wins because it must. Despite its military prowess, it survives because it fights for its survival. Israel is the culmination of Jewish history and the last best hope of the Jewish people. There is no fallback option. Support for Israel Week in Review is brought to you through the generous support of Origin Story Marketing. Search engine optimization services are essential in today's business environment. To learn more, visit originstorymarketing.com. <laughs>